Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. At its best, advertising reflects the cultural mores of society it targets. Right, Tap Lines listener? American ad pantheon is full of titanic spots that showcase the anxieties and aspirations of their respective eras. That's actually one of my favorite things about covering the beer industry, using old commercials as windows into the zeitgeist they were trying to capture. Everybody's got their own favorites, obviously, but for my money, there are few texts richer for deciphering the liminal milieu of the newly online aughts than Tea Partey, a 2006 spoof rap spot from Smirnoff that so perfectly met its moment that it went viral before anybody even really understood what going viral actually meant. It's a Rosetta Stone, take IV meets fake IDs, flickering class consciousness preserved forever in the post-9-11, pre-recession digital amber. Today on Taplines, we're joined by Andy Nathan, the founder and CEO of Fortnite Collective. 17 years ago, he was part of the team tasked with introducing Diageo's newest flavored malt beverage to customers in its New England trial market. When the music video they made was leaked onto a little streaming video startup called YouTube, it changed the way drinkers saw Smirnoff's hard tea and the way beverage alcohol industry insiders saw opportunities around digital video, too. It's Andy Nathan, it's Smirnoff Raw Tea, it's the first viral FMB ad, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. P-Unit forever! Yes! Welcome to Tap Lines, listener. We've got a very special guest, a very special episode for you today, one that's near and dear to your old host, Dave Infante's heart. Uh, you're going to be meeting a guest just a moment who you may not know because he was behind the scenes, but he was behind the scenes on one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, viral flavor of malt and beverage advertisements of the 2000s. That's a that's a rarefied category, by the way, a very important one as far as I'm concerned. I'm talking, of course, about Andy Nathan, who's joining us from Boulder, Colorado. Andy, welcome to Taplines, my man. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate being here. It's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. We're going to take a trip down memory lane in just a moment, scrolling the Taplines time machine back uh, roughly, what is that, 17 years maybe-ish? But before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, who you are and how you uh, got strong-armed into coming on this podcast. <laughs> you bet, yes. So uh, you're joining us from Boulder, Colorado, is that right? Yep. Yeah. So I'm the um, founder and CEO of an ad agency here um, called Fortnite Collective. And we're about seven years old. We also have outposts in New York and London. And we work with a lot of big brands and everything from Goodyear to Crocs to Amazon to, you know, smaller brands. But uh, yeah, we do, you know, everything you can imagine under the sun. And yeah, that's us. Yes. Coming at us uh, from the advertising and marketing discipline, obviously, Taplines listener, an enormous amount of overlap between the beverage alcohol business and the advertising and marketing industry. Uh, beverage alcohol is one of the traditionally one of the biggest spenders behind auto and pharma, maybe, uh, in terms of who's paying, who's throwing ad dollars uh, to get their message out there. And Andy, uh, you're you're now, you know, working uh, as the founder and, and CEO of the Fortnite Collective, but we want to today talk about a period of your career, again, where you um, had a hand in, you know, producing a really important and rich and personally beloved uh, cultural text, so to speak, uh, a, a piece of the zeitgeist in the aughts that is very, you know, special to me because I was, 
uh, I guess, you know, right around legal drinking age or, or I guess like late teens at that time. So a little underage at that time. But um, Andy, you in 2006, which is where we're going to be turning the time machine mm-hmm. to, um, you were working for a different firm, not the one that you founded, the Fortnite Collective, but a different firm uh, based in New York, I want to say. Uh, the, and the correct. acronym is, is BBH. Uh, yep. Andy, what, what was BBH? So yeah, it's uh, it's it's known for Bartle Bogle Haggerty. It's it's actually headquarters out of out of New York, or excuse me, out of London. But we also had an outpost in New York and uh, various places in Asia. And and one of the big clients was Diageo, and in this case, the Smirnoff uh, flavored malt beverage client. Yeah, uh, you worked there what for about two and a half years? You said. Yep. About okay. Two and a half years. Yep. Where was this? Was this your first job in your career? Like, were you young in the in the ad game at that point? Like, had you worked with beverage alcohol clients before? Give you us a little what? bit of context. Yeah, I think, I, you know, at that point, I was probably, let's see, 2006. Uh, I actually came into literally right out of college. I went to Hobart College, which, you know, very much was like prep central. Sure. Um, and uh, I actually so I guess at that point, I was, you know, um, I was about 11 years out of college and and uh, so it was not a first client. Um, you know, when I was at BBH, I worked on Miller Lite. I worked on various Diageo brands. So definitely had, you know, some good category experience. Awesome. So you weren't coming into the beverage alcohol business cold. You sort of understood, it sounds like, especially with Miller Lite, like that's a meat and potatoes brand, obviously, very Americana. You're looking for that uh, middle-aged, you know, repeat customer with two and a half kids, et cetera, et cetera. But the product that we're going to be talking about today that you worked on for BBH um, is one you, you sort of briefly mentioned earlier, and it's Diageo's Smirnoff flavored malt beverage products, but specifically one um, not Smirnoff Ice, which more people are familiar with these days because Smirnoff Ice went on just a few years later to have its own viral moment uh, with icing, which which sort of hit the zeitgeist in 2009 or so. We had a Taplines episode with BroBible.com editor Brandon Wennerd to talk about icing. But before icing, uh, there was actually another Smirnoff-flavored malt beverage product that went viral in its own right, and that's the one you worked on at BBH. I'm talking, of course, about Smirnoff Raw Tea. When did you first yeah. start working on the Smirnoff Raw Tea account? You know, I mean, I think, honestly, it was probably, you know, obviously, a f- you know, a few months before this. I mean, I was working on Smirnoff Ice at the time. Yep. And I think we worked very closely with our London office. They ran the global Smirnoff Ice business. And so, honestly, I think it was a, it was a test market in New England. And I think it was, like, sort of thrown over to us over the pond to work on Obviously, we had much more familiarity with the U.S. market. Sure. And it was kind of a, it was really a smaller project. And, uh, you know, so we kind of got it sent our way and said, hey, see what you can do with this. I love that. It's a smaller project and it blew up in a very big way. I want to talk about that because I think like, you know, obviously Smirnoff raw tea is not something that's super familiar to the American drinking public in 2023. It, I think, was sort of a forerunner of a very popular sub-segment of the flavored malt beverage category. Obviously, Twisted Tea now owns that category, a Boston Beer Company product. Um, but Hard Tea in 2006 was a really niche, really sort of down-market, uh, roll-your-eyes drink for the the predominant demographic of drinkers, which is the, I guess, like 21 to, to, to 29 or 32-year-old male who uh, is mostly at that point 
really looking for beer and maybe a little bit of spirits. The idea of hard seltzer had not come along yet. These flavored malt beverages were sort of relegated to the back cooler. They were a little embarrassing. Culturally, they were coded uh, very feminine, um, girly drinks, you know, quote unquote. Mm. Um, so you come along and you get tasked with, you know, your Smirnoff client, you know, says, hey, we've got this new product, raw tea. Uh, we want to get it out there. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of ways to frame that up in fresh new contexts for the target demographic, you guys stumbled on one. Um, and it is since it, it immediately took on a life of its own. Tell me mm -hmm. early on when you were brainstorming for how to get the message out about, about raw tea in 2006, how did you wind up with the idea that you ultimately went with? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, you know, anytime you are briefed on a new project or a product, you know, it's like, how do you give it a fighting chance, right? Like, what are the handles you can hang on to, you know? And sometimes it's, hey, it tastes amazing. Or, you know, it could be product intrinsics. It could be, you know, I think in this case, there was like a larger cultural opportunity. You know, I think you touched upon some of the things we were thinking about, which is how do we get this to become a, bigger than what it is? It's a New England test market. Um, how do we become more part of the cultural lexicon? You know, how do we break away from the stigma of the category? You go to focus groups and literally, especially when you talk to men, um, you know, when they talked about, you know, this category, it was like a chick drink. That's what they'd say in focus right. groups. It kind of tasted kind of cloying, you know, in some ways, sure. the white claws and all those and smearing up there, they were sort of, these products were before their time, but you had a increasingly like jaded and inaccessible target. And everyone else, as you said, Mike's Hard Lemonade, we're trying to be really hard about it. And at the end of the day, you know, the killer new drink that we're looking to sell was this like sort of iced tea. It's very passive, right? It's like, you know, it's very soft. Inoffensive. It's very, yep, yep, yeah, yep. it's polite. It's gentle. And you're like, it's not exactly the edge of cool. So how do we make it cool? I think the initial like brief, you know, like statement, we said, you know, introducing new Smirnoff uh, raw tea, uh, tea with attitude. Like that was the whole, like, how do we inject some subversiveness and some attitude to it? And I think for us, it's like when you think about, you know, the occasion for drinking iced tea, it tends to be, you know, in like backyards and lawns and it's, you know, very sort of low energy drink. And then if we're going to inject some attitude and we knew it was going to be in New England, like there was no better place than to almost introduce this to like a sort of prep audience. Yeah, I love that. And, and your background at Hobart, no doubt. Uh, bore in when you started to think about the aesthetics and sort of the context that you're putting together. Hobart, for those who don't know, uh, is uh, a school in what central New York? I want to say, yeah, uh, upstate yeah, New York, yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. yeah. Um. And is it in the NESCAC or no? I forget if it's actually NESCAC um, school. You know, it's funny. At the time, it was like uh, it was Division Three lacrosse, lacrosse um, powerhouse. And, yeah, and yeah, I was yeah, I was yeah. a lacrosse player, and, and really? I think that's an interesting observation too. It's like, you know, the the. The guy who wrote this, you know, script, his name's Matt Ian. He's from Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, but it's interesting. He's not your typical Greenwich guy. Like he's got, he's all tatted up. And, you know, so like, I do think some of the best, interesting, most observational creative work are people who sort of sit either like almost have a step in and outside of the culture that you're literally sort of, you know, talking about or, of or capturing. And, and I think like, you know, I was a lacrosse player from upstate New York, went to public school. Like I sort of had one foot in there and one foot out, you know, so I was like observing this, this preppy culture almost from afar. And I think even a guy like Matt, my guess is, you know, he lived in that world, but also just had his own sort of worldview. So it was an interesting way to be able to capture it from almost like a, 
an anthropological point of view. No doubt. Yeah. You have to yeah. be steeped in that milieu to, in order to understand it and, and get like the visual references and line up, you know, the music and the lyrics and et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about, you know, I've teased it enough and, and listeners who have not yet seen the actual ad that, uh, that we're talking about, but the, the actual spot itself that I'm referring to is, I think it's just called Tea Partay. Um, and mm -hmm. you guys release it, you, you, you produce it and you release it in 2006 and it brought most broadly speaking, just so everyone sort of understands what it is that we're referring here to. And listener, I certainly encourage you to go watch this. It, like I said, I adore this, this, uh, commercial. I think it's fantastic on its own merit. I mean that unironically, uh, what we're referring to in the broadest sense is a spoof rap video, right? And at the at the very beginning of our interview, I said P Unit Forever. That's you know this was around the time when Fifty Cent and G Unit was sort of reaching its uh, uh, peak of mainstream sort of awareness in the zeitgeist. Um, you guys put together a, a spoof rap video with a bunch of really preppy sack lodge from Wedding Crasher types. Um, rapping about the merits of raw tea. Tell me a little bit about producing the commercial, Andy. Yeah, you bet. I mean, you know, and I think in some ways it was all about like, how do we take that rich preppiness and where like this is going to be consumed and give it some edge. And, and I think for us, it's like, you know, your traditional route for something like this is like 30 second ads, 15 second ads, radio spots, outdoor boards, you know, like on, sure. you know, on highways on the way to, you know, and we thought like, We'll probably have to create some advertising, but what if we actually went deeper and created some counterculture content? You know, I think the other cultural context um, of, of this launch was it was right around the time, right before like things like Lazy Sunday, you know, yes. the SNL. Yes. You know, so it's like in some ways there was all of a sudden there's longer form content that's sort of living in the world. It's not your traditional 30 second spot. So I think for us, it was like creating this almost like prep gangsta movement, you know, yep. and it's like, yep. it, you know, it's like goodbye preppies, hello prepsters, you know, and, and it was just a really different sort of way of talking. And it was a bit audacious. I think to give this thing a fighting chance, we had to be sort of audacious and not polite or and, and not hard, right? Not trying to be Twisted tea, not trying to be, you know, Mike's hard lemonade either. You had to be self-referential. You had to be tongue-in-cheek when advertising yep. the raw tea product. No one is going to believe that this thing is like, you know, uh, uh, hardcore and it, it belongs on sort of the bleeding vanguard edge in the yeah. way that yeah. I think, you know, uh, uh, other products would try and fail to do. So you guys went with this sort of this this spoof rap video. Um, you filmed a long-form piece. I forget exactly what the runtime is, but it's a full it effectively plays as a music video. Yeah, so it's, it, and it literally, I mean, I think when you watch it, and actually, I think, you know, there's definitely many versions online, you'll see it. There was, I think the, the, the version was about 2.15. I did notice as I was sort of refreshing for this, there actually is, it's funny, there was like a lost verse that actually, we had to cut it down. It was like three something, <laughs> and it just was too long. And, but I mean, even like, you know, like when you look at it, it's like the intro, we introduce who the director is, what the song is. It's like, yeah. you know, we definitely try to create, you know, make it be more like a music video than an ad. And so um, we actually shot it at um, in Mamaronek, New York, one day, like a long, long day. Um, and at this, I think it was called the Orienta, you know, Yacht Club or, you know, and um, and it was a perfect environment for it because it had 
every possible setting, you know, in this prepster world that we could actually capture and do it, you know, somewhat affordably and sort of, you know, agilely. And and actually, I think really like the secret sauce, I mean, there's a, you know, we talked about Matt Ion. There was a um, amazing creative also. Her name's Ami Shah. She was the art director on it. In some ways, like they were the rock stars. I was merely the agent. I was like the account executive who helped sort of like bring this along and help sell money it man. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I remember they presented it to me before we we're going to present it like, you know, the following week. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, and there are times in your career where you're just like, this is perfection. And, and I, to be fair, like maybe five words changed from the, the, you know, the script that we presented to, um, you know, to where we actually landed. And actually, I think I worked all weekend on like coming up with like integrated, like, oh, you know, like we can do events at the Princeton Club, which, by the way, we did. You know, like, like we almost Amazing. tried to make it feel more well-rounded and integrated. So I sort of worked through the weekend on like, hey, how do we give this more legs than just a music video? Because the last thing the client's going to want to do is, you know, put all their money into that, that, you know, those eggs in the basket. And so, you know, showed it to them. They're like, this is great. You know, we put it together, presented it to the client. Now, it was interesting at the time, I think the Diageo, you know, they had an office in New York, but they also had an office in Fairfield County. You know, one of our clients was based in Fairfield. Actually, I think both, like one was in New Canaan, one was in Fairfield, one went to Princeton. So they got that world. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was, um, you know, so there's definitely... You know, they understood it and understood where we're going with it. I think like the, you know, how we took this to an 11 was the director. And so the director was um, his name, you know, he goes by Little X. Mm -hmm. And he at the time directed tons of rap videos. And so he, you know, and I think he was looking to sort of break into the advertising world. And I think the production company that backed him at the time, you know, was looking for him to get into the advertising world. So it was like sort of a a way to marry those two things. And he just, you know, he captured that essence so well. If we're trying to do a rap video, you know, he literally, his treatment would have things like the intimidator shot, which is like, you know, the low angle dolly shot. And like, he just could give that perspective (laughs) of how to capture, you know, all, all the nuance to this stuff. I think that's part of what makes this such sort of an iconic and timeless uh, uh, music video or timeless, you know, piece of the culture is the fact that it is directed, you know, the spoof is the, is the lyrics and the, and the wardrobe, which are phenomenal, extremely preppy over the top, take Ivy, you know, very, very jokey. Um, But then the, the actual aesthetic and cinematography of the video is very straightforward, as you said, like very, it is a real rap video. And that's uh, uh, a tribute to this guy, Little X. His name is Julian Christian Lutz. Uh, I just, listeners, if, if you're not familiar with him, he had already at that point directed a G Unit music video and would go on to direct videos for Kanye West, Mob Deep, and Nicki Minaj. So, like, this is someone who is very much in that culture. I mean, Andy, you mentioned earlier in our our conversation about the idea of being one foot in one culture, one foot in the other. Uh, You had a director who was straddling the line between legitimate, you know, rap bona fides and then the advertising space where you can kind of use those same skills to turn a otherwise sort of milk toast campaign, no offense, onto its head and really be the secret sauce that that brings it all together. I love that, man. Yeah. So Lil X uh, directs the video. You guys shoot it up in Mamaroneck, New York, a very uh, wealthy enclave in Westchester County, I think, at a yacht club. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, we mentioned earlier the inventory or sort of like the places you see this going and the ways you see it rolling out. 
And you and you named you rattled off sort of the obvious ones, the ones that everyone, you know, at that time in 2006 is mostly thinking about. We got Billboard, we got radio, we got TV, maybe some magazine, et cetera, et cetera. But there was something new uh, that was coming to the fore um, in the digital space at that time that would take Tea Party from uh, an amusing but ultimately limited, um, you know, sort of message board oddity and turn it into a full-blown viral sensation. And that was YouTube, right? YouTube yeah. comes online, I think, in 2005, um, just a year prior. And that sort of changes the game in ways that people aren't really aware of just yet. I, want, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you guys were thinking about the digital rollout if you were thinking about the digital rollout of this video and, you know, yeah. how that squared with what actually happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, to be honest, like, um, you know, I think we knew, like, YouTube was really starting to take hold. And, you know, I think we as an agency did not, I mean, I think, you know, to Diageo's credit, you know, anytime I've ever worked with them, I mean, they are so, you know, conscious of, like, underage drinking and want to make sure that, you know, it does not get in you know, people under 21's hands and stuff. Sure. So I think there were always sort of like mechanisms in place to, you know, to try to make sure that we're not targeting, you know, minors. And so, yep. you know, I think actually there was some concern about being on YouTube. And, you know, I honestly think like to this day, we don't know who did it, but someone posted it almost prematurely. Like our website wasn't live, you know, so like this thing started <laughs> blowing up and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, you got, you know, we, we joked like we went platinum within 24 hours, you know, it had a million views. I think, you know, it's, you know, it's funny. I mean, we were just sort of watching this thing and it was like, I am Igor was the username of whoever put it up. And it was like, it had like, you know, almost 2 million, you know, views after like a month or two. I think at one point it was up to 8 million views, which was kind of unheard of back then with the exception of something like a lazy, you know, lazy Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, it was favorited. I mean, at some point we thought it was comedy. It was like, it was like one of the highest rated, like comedy, not comedy ads, literally like comedy content on YouTube, you know, at some <laughs> point. So, so it just, you know, it really sort of took hold. And, you know, I think beyond, so that kind of lit the fuse, you know, where people started talking about it. We got a lot of feedback, like, you know, people in Cape Cod just kept playing it and watching it and being like, trying to figure out where it was shot. You know, people were throwing tea party parties, you know, people were doing parody videos, you know, and I, I always joke like, you know, I know, you know, we've made it. I know we're successful when when my mom or dad see these things and I don't have to send it to them. Yeah. You yeah. know, and this was one of these things that literally was on CNN. It was on, you know, pro I, you know, whether it was the Today Show or Good Morning America. I mean, it just was like all over earned media, you know, everything from People Magazine to things we're loving this week on OK Mag, you know, that sort of thing. It really yeah. sort of inserted itself in the pop culture consciousness. Was there a moment at any point when, like, before, you know, when it goes on YouTube and before it becomes sort of the uh, runaway success that it was, were you panicked at any? I mean, like, in, in a different context, that's bootlegging, right? Like someone got a hold of this collateral or this creative yeah. that they weren't supposed to have. Was there a moment of panic there where you're like, oh no, like we're in trouble? As the account guy? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, you know, it's like you're responsible for all these things and, you know, it's, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it, this was just such new territory, you know, it's like you're entering this new world of things like, you know, you, I mean, I, I don't even know when YouTube was founded, but I got to think, 
it wasn't far off from you know when this video ran. I think and, it was. And, I think it was 2005. I think it's only a year yeah. old that YouTube was really yeah. a thing. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's, but you just got to keep. You know, it's like I don't know. It's like from an old movie, like um, you know, tangle up and tango on. You just got to keep going. You got to figure this out. You got to you know make sure that you're doing the right thing and you're being responsible about how you do it. And it just it just absolutely took off and. You know, I think it's sort of interesting now, like it's won tons of awards. I mean, the fact that people are still talking about it, I think there's all these like, you know, prep groups and stuff like online, like kind of groups that come together. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll always see them like posting, you know, this video. People, you know, half the people have seen it, you know, and watch it, you know, 15 times a year. The other half, like, I'm like, I've never seen this. Oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. You know, and. I think one of the things I'm most proud of um, for this is that I think it's on the permanent collection in the MoMA. We won a, a no very way. specific exclusive. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's something called the AICP <laughs> Next Innovation Awards. And by virtue of you winning this sort of like grand prize, it's it's on the permanent collection they in the MoMA. I mean, I assume it's it's archived or something. But, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. Still and, counts. Yeah. Still counts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, that is hysterical, man. I had no idea about that. But yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Like there was this sort of uh, explosion of interest in it. I think at one point, I don't know if, if BBH or or you were still on the account at that point, but um, they tried to recreate the ma- Smirnoff tried to recreate the magic with like a West Coast versus East Coast tea because they were going to do like a green hard tea and that was going to be more sort of like California style. There was yeah. another video didn't go. It was still fairly funny. Didn't go quite nearly as far, but it, it couldn't quite recapture yeah, magic. Can, but I there was speak the, to that. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me more about that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the global relationship for Smirnoff was at BBH, you know, and obviously it's far bigger than, you know, things like, you know, viral videos for a, a you know, a, a regional spot market test. Right. And at some point, you know, they <laughs> made more the to decision the job, yeah. to, yeah. And so they transferred the whole Smirnoff business over to JWT, which is J, uh, J. Walter Thompson. You know, actually, I had a friend who worked on that there. And it's funny, you know, we were thinking about that and it's it's, it's the obvious place you would have taken it. I don't think, you know, I don't think it was as funny. I don't think, you know, it's funny. I'm not saying the prepsters were likable, but they weren't unlikable. It was sort of, you know, whereas I feel like the West Coast guys were very unlikable. Agreed. And, I, think, um, I think you're absolutely yeah. right about that. I think there was a weird edge to, uh, by the way, I love that we're able to, this is the whole point of tap lines, or at least this is what the show that I want to yeah. be doing is to be able to break down uh, low culture in like extreme detail like this. I think it's really important and fun to be able to do this. So I'm glad that you're willing to come along for the ride. But yeah, no, I totally agree with you that the East Coast versus West Coast concept didn't quite gel in the same way because it had uh, a weird edge to it. And and it sounds like yeah. at that point it was with a different agency. Andy, I, can you just to read our listeners in for context who are very familiar with the beer industry, but may not be as familiar with the advertising industry. You said that JWT was the obvious place to take it. What's the, what's the, how do people think of JWT at that point? No, versus what, what, I, what I meant is like the West coast beef. Oh, oh, was the okay, obvious okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and actually, you know, I mean, you know, JWT, I mean, they're all great agencies, you know I mean? I, I think that's the beauty of, you know, working at a lot of these bigger, really, you know, good agencies is you're always going to have, you know, find the right people to work on these things to capture interesting insights, you know, some more than others. Yep. You know, I mean, that's the thing about a process like this. I mean, I, I do think that these clients were really brave. I mean, you know, I mean, it, they, they took a, yep. a swing on this one, you know, and and I, you know, at some point the the main client was on like, I don't know, it was like viral videos of the year on like, you know, 
I don't know, NBC or some show that rolled up all these, you know, and it was, and again, this was like viral videos of like, you know, people getting hit in the groin and getting 50 million hits. It wasn't like ads. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, at this time, there was no such thing as like these huge, like, you know, advertising that becomes like, you know, content. So it was just such new, you know, rarefied air. I think that's a really interesting distinction that I think nowadays many, certainly industry people, but even rank and file drinkers think about advertising more in terms of content and how can we sort of like build a universe around this stuff and, and, you know, like where are the activations, et cetera, et cetera. That's something that I hear all the time when I talk to people who are working on beverage alcohol advertising and marketing in 2023. Um, At that time, to your point, like the idea of like activating was not, it's not that that clients didn't want to do that, but roping in this sort of viral digital momentum and then creating sort of like a earned media opportunity around that was still to some extent, like that was uncharted territory, right? People weren't doing that so much. No. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, it's been so long. I mean, God, how many, you know, 20, 17 years. Yeah. Right. 17, yeah, it's yeah. hard, but it's hard to like think through the cultural context of the type. I mean, clearly Nike was doing incredible ads that people admired and, you know, I'm sure the, you know, and, but, but the thing is it tended to be like desk, you know, appointment viewing, right? All right. You're going to watch ads on the Super Bowl, right? Right. right. It's, it's, you're going to go to the ads. It's not going to come to you. I mean, maybe at a movie theater, you might have a longer form, but it, it just was at the time. It just didn't happen, you know? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And like a lot of sites still had their own proprietary video players. So like they wouldn't, you know, this, this obviously went viral on YouTube, but that was still at the time. Uh, in in digital media where the big establishment players are trying to route video through their existing proprietary players and they're always janky and they never work yeah. and like they don't load and whatever. So people weren't, and, and part of the coincidental or luck of the timing that Tea Party hits at is YouTube is reaching that sort of adoption point and it has that universality where, you know, you can watch it, uh, whether it's embedded or it's a link that's been sent to you in your email or whatever, everyone understands how to use it intuitively. Um, and, and it just kind of goes from there, man, man, that's so, uh, tell me here, here's a question for you. When you were, uh, back up, we, I sort of skipped over this part, but I should have asked Mm -hmm. you this before. Um, when you were pitching it to the client, you said that they were brave. And I, I think I understand what you're saying there. And, and to some extent, I think I agree. Tell me what their reaction was and tell me what you mean by that bravery for taking a shot at this. Well, for starters, I mean, I think one interesting, like, context to this is that there is a global um, Smirnoff ice campaign. Um, and it was out of some character named Yuri who lived, you know, in like, I don't know, like, you know, somewhere, you know, in a really icy, you know, winter land. Right, and, right. And, you know, our first brief from BBH London was put this in the context of the Yuri campaign. <laughs> so there, that alone, you know, we so but basically what we did is we did Hey, here's the Yuri campaign. We don't we don't stand by. We don't think it's right for this. And here's Tea Party. And we yeah. presented both to them. And and so that's one way where the client was brave, you know, you know, going against like the sort of global corporate line on that. But then I guess the other thing is, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it just they put a lot of their you know eggs in the basket of financially, you know, getting this long form content. Now, 
it was, you know, easier because, you know, we could pull stills and pull a lot of stuff. So it's not to say we couldn't do a 30 or 15 second TV ad, or I think we did some radio spots. I think, you know, you know, we did some, you know, outdoor boards so we could still do a lot of the things that we, you know, that a traditional launch like this would do, but we added this extra sort of like X factor thing that just, you know, really was the thing that they were very brave about. Yeah. You said before, I just want to touch on this really quick. You said before when the video leaked on YouTube, as it's starting to pick up steam, you guys realized you didn't even have the website online yet, right? You had tparte.com already parked as a, as a domain, but there was nothing there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was, there's no question that was a bit of a mess. You know, we didn't anticipate it to go on YouTube. How could you have known? And by that point, you know, and so, you know, and it's funny, I think with, I mean, again, we didn't have a lot of money either. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like everything was bootstrapped. I think in the end, we did this like Tea Parte Prepster handbook. I, you know, I I might have some like screen grabs of it, but I I think the file itself, it was a really like low file. I mean, we literally like, there was a guy at our, you know, who worked there, who he went to Princeton. And so from his Princeton reunions, we got a picture, you know, like we literally would capture like pictures of like me giving a speech on a boat at a wedding. You know, it was like things like that. Like we just like, it was so bootstrapped. And so that's what it was. I think it was like, uh, we sort of did a tea party handbook that was basically inspired by the preppy handbook. Yeah. Um, and it was like a couple pages, but it I just wasn't that. ready yet. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, man, you got to dig up that file, dude. Uh, yeah. I think we have a synopsis of all this, like all the work we did. I'll try to find that deck and send it to you. Dig up the file. The people need to know, Andy. This yeah. is, this is, uh, like, I mean, call the MoMA. You know, they need, they need this, uh, they need this collateral uh, to round out the exhibit. Yep. Um, Andy, looking back on it, you know, like we said, 17 years later, 2006, so much has changed, not only with the world, but then specifically with advertising. Obviously, uh, the platforms would come along and sort of change the entire way people are thinking about finding audiences and, and all that you know stuff that's really more your lane than mine. But I, I'm hoping maybe, you know, by way of sort of putting it all in context or putting a bow on it here, um, is this the sort of thing like... Could you make this ad now? Like, is it lightning in a bottle that could have only existed at this point in the internet? Like I said, I love the content itself, but it seems to me that there were a set of factors that, you know, planets kind mm. of aligned for Tea Party. What do you think? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There were two or three times where I've seen things where I'm like, I'm sure they showed this ad to try to help sell it. Right, right. You know, there's one called Toyota Swagger Wagon. I don't know if you've seen that, which is basically like, I mean, and that was probably, I don't know, my guess is that ran in 2013. It's not like it was like three years ago. But still seven years later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally making that up. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But but like and that was like literally trying to tout a minivan and it was capturing the parents like, you know, like, you know, with a a lot of attitude. And I guarantee you that was one where they actually, um, you know, they they basically probably showed this as a reference you know, there's another one that actually BBH did out of London for a milk brand. I can't remember the name of the brand, but that was a long form video with farmers and they actually got little X to direct it. So clearly, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. So that was sort of interesting, too. Now, I mean, they're all their own little thing. I mean, you know, I, I honestly think like this was like, you know. Uh, there was just something like lightning in a bottle in terms of the culturally. Now, are there DNA strands of this that now exist every day? Absolutely. Sure. Like people who sort of like 
do not focus on product intrinsics and product benefits and, and it's more played for like laughs and entertainment value and things like that, you know, versus like functionality. I think there's there's probably 50 things that are done or more this year that are like that, you know? And I think the other thing, I mean, I think like we always talk about at our company, like what is the unobvious truth, right? It's so easy to go out there with the obvious truth. And I think in this case, you know, we were, you know, embracing like iced tea's geekiness and and it's sort of like, you know, tranquility and just like almost wanted to ramp it up and give it some edge. I think it it gave this brand a fighting chance, you know, that normally it just if we did it the way probably like the expected way to do it, it would just be another like lime wine cooler. Yeah, totally. Go off like a fart mm-hmm. in a bathtub and really never yeah. make the cultural impact that it would go on to do. Andy Nathan, thank you so much for joining Taplines. It was a pleasure uh, returning to the the yacht club in my mind's eye that is forever modeled around Tea Partey, uh, the Smirnoff Raw Tea commercial. Thanks so much for coming, man. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Dave. It was a lot of fun. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.